Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and I hope you are getting out and enjoying the beautiful weather that we have had the last couple of days. It was almost, um, it was well, I guess a little above 60 degrees today, and uh, a fantastic day to get out with the family. We were able to head out and uh, drove about 40 minutes away, went and shot our turkey gun, for the uh, our new turkey gun, actually, my kids are going to be turkey hunting with me this year, so we bought a little uh, 410 and uh, shooting TSS out of that. And let me tell you, that is a sweet shooter, man. I I wasn't so sure about the whole TSS thing, and uh, especially out of a 410. Anyway, I mean, I, I knew TSS was good, but I just wasn't real convinced about the about the 410 and the TSS turkey loads in the 410. But I, I've got to tell you, super impressed with the grouping today. Uh, my kids were shooting out at 30 yards, and um, you know that's more than a, than any turkey is going to want to handle. And my kids did a great job, and so uh, yeah, we're looking forward to getting them out in the woods. We were able to get out today after shooting a bit and went for a, a family hike and saw some turkeys while we were out. And so yeah, just a really really great time. Got me getting pumped up for uh, for turkey season. You know, I've been riding around a little bit before work, sometimes after work, and. We've been seeing a lot of birds in the fields on the farms that I've got permission on and seeing a couple of toms out strutting and watching them sort of set the pecking order and do a little bit of fighting around. So, yeah, they're starting to feel it a little bit. And let me tell you, so am I. I'm, I'm excited to get out and I'm going to be kicking things off with my daughter during youth season. Um, she is seven years old. This will be her first year hunting for turkeys. And I promised her that I would take her out for, for youth season this year. We'll only be able to be out on Saturday morning, so we won't get both days of the youth season, but hey, one day is better than none, and then that very next week, my son actually, who's uh, only five, but we're going to get him out and see see how he does. Uh, he has a season A tag, and then I have a season B tag, then my wife has a tag for season C, then my daughter, if she doesn't fill her tag during the youth season, has a season uh, D tag, and so we'll be back after it then. And I will most likely be able to snag up a season D, E, and F tag, uh, if not for the, the area right here where we live, certainly for the spot down the road. So, man, I'll tell you, it is going to be one heck of a turkey season for us this year. We are really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, I, I've always uh, looked forward to that day whenever we could start getting our kids out in the woods and, and start hunting with them. I never really thought much about, though, how quickly things were going to get very, very busy for me when it came down to needing to uh, take their tags into account. So this is going to be a busy spring. It's going to be a learning curve for all of us, them learning how to hunt turkeys, me learning how to take my kids hunting for turkeys. 
But uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's just going to be a really busy season for us this year. On another note, we are headed down to Alabama next week for a little bit of spring break action. Uh, we might even be able to squeeze in a morning or two of chasing around some Bama birds. I don't have a real good lead on any um, any good turkey farms down there or anything, so I'll be out uh, probably, if anything, chasing some birds around on public land. But, uh, you know, it's a family vacation. I don't want to jeopardize time with the family for hunting uh, since, you know, when we get back, things are really going to be uh, full bore and overdrive for turkeys here in Wisconsin. But hey, who knows? Maybe I'll get out and chase some birds while I'm in Alabama. And while we've got turkeys on the mind, today we are talking wild turkeys with Dr. Grant Woods of Growing Deer. Um, you know, there's, it's been a lot uh, of hype on social media here lately and with other outlets about the declining turkey populations across much of the U.S., um, you know, and, and lots of people, including me, have really been sounding the alarm on that. Thankfully, turkey populations here in the state of Wisconsin are still really, really strong. But, uh, you know, my question has always been, OK, they're really strong here in Wisconsin. They're struggling in places like Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas. What can we do to keep from going down the road that some of these other states have? Like, is there anything that we can do to avoid seeing the decline that other states have experienced. Now, uh, according to our DNR here in the state of Wisconsin, our turkey population is really stable. But as I've talked to some turkey hunters in my area, I've noticed several of them have, have kind of told me, hey, it used to be really common for me to see a hen with 10 poults running around or eight poults running around. And now we see a hen with two poults. And, um, you know, so even though uh, the numbers may be right around, you know, pretty stable right now. There's still a chance that we could get lumped in like some of these other states and start seeing declining populations. There's some anecdotal evidence that maybe the, the population is just on the verge of decline. So I want to know, what can we do to keep from going down that road? Well, in this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Grant Woods about the causes of turkey population decline and how land managers can really help to right the ship. You know, a majority of turkeys just the reality of this is the majority of turkeys live on private land. State agencies often get a bad rap for how they're handling different types of species and uh, you know what the populations are doing in the state. But the reality is a majority of turkeys, a majority of deer live on private land. So it's up to us, especially those of us who own land, to manage our places for turkeys, for deer, if we want to see something different about the population. If we want more turkeys on the landscape, we have to do something about it on our property. We have to put our money and our time where our mouth is. Now, Grant is a biologist with decades of experience managing land to create healthy habitat for deer, turkeys, and all sorts of other critters. Grant's southern Missouri property is dubbed the Proving Grounds, and he had very, very few turkeys on that place when he, when he uh, first purchased it. Today, the place is an absolute turkey mecca. And intensive habitat management and predator population control have both played a really big role in Grant's success. In this episode, we cover uh, predator population control, forestry practices, modern farming practices, and all sorts of other things that, that really impact turkey populations, specifically uh, impact poult survival. If you're passionate about wild turkeys and want to see them thrive, then uh, hey, this episode is for you. And uh, yeah, we're going to jump in here in just a minute and talk Turkey Management 101 with, uh, with Dr. Woods. But one bit of housekeeping first. 
you already know you can follow along with the podcast on Instagram. You already know. Uh, I've already told you it's a huge help if you can subscribe or follow this podcast wherever it is you access your podcast. If you leave us a review, that's even better. If you leave us a written review, well, that's even better than that. Now there's one more avenue for those of you who are interested in supporting this podcast. We are now on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a crowdfunding platform for creators that allows you to financially support those who are creating content that you enjoy. So if you dig this podcast, you can head over to Patreon, look us up on there, and sign up for one of four different patron options. Each patron option has some pretty sweet benefits, including access to exclusive content like bonus episodes of the podcast. Uh, doing this podcast, let me I'll, I'll be honest with you, it ain't cheap. And this is just one way that you can help us keep the lights on, help us keep bringing you quality content, and uh, yeah, maybe even make things a little bit better, allow us to expand what we're doing here and branch into a couple of new avenues. So if you are so inclined, head over to patreon.com and look up the Wisconsin Sportsman. Uh, Pick one of those patron levels and, uh, hey, help out with the podcast. Now, with all of that stuff out of the way, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Uh, I know I've mentioned other ways that you can support us, like Instagram, like Patreon, all of that good stuff. But at the end of the day, what matters most to me is that you guys show up week in, week out, and listen to me ramble And, uh, hey, I will say, listen to some of the pretty sweet guests that we have on here. Um, It's been a blast so far. Looking forward to continuing this for a long time to come. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump in and talk turkey with Grant Woods. All right, joining me today for this episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. Grant, how are you doing? Man, good morning. Thank you for having me, and I am well today. Cold front's not here yet, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> what What is a cold front for you guys? You're in southern Missouri? Southern Missouri, down the Ozark Mountains, uh, by Tate Brock Lake. And, you know, I think this was only expected to get maybe in the teens or something. The other week we were at five, but this time of year, normally we're, you know, 20s at night, something like that, and 30s and day. It's it's good working weather. It's good to be outside and working in it. There you go. There you go. Well, Grant, why don't Certainly you... not Wisconsin, man. I, I, I spoke in, <laughs> actually in northern Wisconsin at an event up there a couple of years ago and got in one night. Apparently a cold front come in, stepped out of the hotel the next morning. Woo! I said, man, this boy needs to go back south. <laughs> it, it gets chilly pretty quick. We, uh, My family and I moved up two years ago from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is nothing like the weather we've experienced here. Uh, so yeah, I know, I know all about thinking every now and then like, mm, I think I should head back South. I think it's about, I think it's about <laughs> that time. But, uh, yeah. anyway, well, Grant, for, for those who maybe don't know who you are or haven't heard of growing deer, why don't you fill us in about uh, who you are, what you do and, and really how you got to where you are today? Yeah. You know, I was raised on a farm, not far from here, a little hundred acre farm. And of course, back in the day you had pigs and cows and hay fields and grain fields, kind of everything on one farm. And so it was great quail and rabbit habitat. And my family were big quail hunters and rabbit hunters. And there were no deer in the area. And I don't know. I, I wish I could remember. But I heard at the barbershop or somewhere when I was young, I think first grade, that they were going to restore, restock some deer in that part of the county. Man, I was so excited. I'd never seen a deer. And one morning, right before Christmas, I was in first grade. I was running my trap line, which was rabbit traps built out of old barn wood, you know, nothing fancy, but in my mind, I was a big Yukon trapper or something and <laughs> get up early for school, do my chores and run my little trap line. There were a lot of rabbits. And, um, 
and I found a female fawn that in one of our little fields that had been shot in the head. And ever since that day, I've literally really disliked poachers, trespassers, and just, just, I don't know, been in love, fantasized, whatever about deer. I've just, you know, and, and I got to tell you now that I'm older and hindsight, I believe God used that moment literally to inspire me to be a deer biologist and learn about creation and stuff through that. Cause I, I never got away from that. No, I went to college, a uh, small college, didn't have a wildlife program, weren't many wildlife programs back then. Uh, it was zoology, but I just wanted to do the, you know, the wildlife side. I didn't really care about the microscope, which I now know is important for wildlife, but I, I just, man, I want something with fur and claws or, you know, some horns or something, you know, I, I need no horns and antlers back then. I just wanted to be in the wildlife side and saw a, a little postcard long before the internet on the college wall about uh, going out West with an organization still involved called uh, SCA student conservation association and got a summer job working in mule deer habitat and hmm. a little bit more scientific collecting samples, seeing what deer ate during the winter and all that and had a great boss, a good scientist, good boss. And, and that kind of propelled me on to get a master's and, and then a PhD with deer. And I just, I just went to school so I could work with deer. I went, I was never thinking, boy, I'm going to get a PhD. I was just like, you mean they're going to let me work with deer, man, this sounds good. I take a few stats and a little chemistry with it, but I get to work with deer. So uh, that's kind of how I got here. And then when I was in school, uh, I just, you know, I really enjoyed the research side, but to be really honest, not the politics. And I, started helping some landowners while I was in school. And when I finished my PhD, I just started helping landowners and never looked back. I, I just, I just started doing it. There was no map written out plan. There was nothing like that. And growing deer was just a way to share information with a larger audience and maybe not travels much. I'm not sure that's true. We assisted five landowners last week and I'm flying out to North Carolina to assist three this week. So we still travel a lot, but uh, it's just a way to follow my heart and work with deer. Yeah. See, so, so you never really went the state agency side of things. I mean, you went right into helping landowners. I did. And I helped them trap turkeys and did some temporary jobs and whatnot. But, uh, uh, I, I really enjoy learning. I mean, I, people say, I mean, I just really enjoy learning. I read all the time. There's books on my desk about soil science. Um, and I enjoy helping landowners get more out of their land. And, and, and there's all kinds of connections there. Just, you know, like people planting gardens or having five hens, uh, you know, chickens in, a, in their backyard. I, there's so many lessons there about life. And so people buy land and just, they buy it in a good zip code or not so good zip code and just assume there's going to be a bunch of big deer or they're going to grow a million dollars of pine timber, whatever it is. And, and I really enjoy helping them kind of focus on reality and then meet the, those realistic objectives. I really like that. I, I just really enjoy that. Yeah. So I, I think most of the people that are probably familiar with you right now uh, probably know a bit about what you do on the land side of things, but they probably know you most from your work at the Proving Grounds. Right? Why don't you walk us through a little bit what what what. Yeah, my wife Tracy and I were living in South Carolina. Tracy's a Southern Belle. I met her while I was going to school down at Clemson, and uh, and we're both farm kids. And of course, got school going. We were living in what was called the historical district in Greenville, South Carolina, which means your house is about to fall down. Now, that's what historical district means. It's old <laughs> and dilapidated. That's what that means. Sounds anyway, so romantic. Cheap side, cheap side of town. 
And uh, we got us 13 acres out in the country, man, thought we were in heaven. My dad actually killed a, a deer there with a the homemade longbow, and I had a food plot, was doing stuff. And uh, But wanted more land, and we were back here in Missouri visiting family. I never thought about coming to southern Missouri. This is not a deer mecca by any stretch. No one says, I'm going to Branson, Missouri, go deer hunting. <laughs> and uh, and just but a long story short, found this old burnout cattle ranch for sale at a price we could afford and just kind of jumped in. And it was gnarly rough and we had no budget. So a lot of handwork at first, just killing locust trees or doing whatever and got the first food plot and then the second and the third and, and learning a lot of lessons. And I, I, matter of fact, I shared this with a young man this morning that wrote me uh, about whether he should continue on for his PhD or not. What's my experience? And I told him, and I, and I believe this is all my heart and I'm not anti-university. A lot of my great friends and colleagues are professors and do wonderful work there. But I believe you're fine that most of the cutting edge edge inventions or techniques or changes or tweaks or whatever come from practitioners mm. and then universities maybe take it further or put a number to it or refine it or justify it or whatever's going on. But, you know, someone figures out, well, gosh, if I, if I grow a cover crop, I don't have erosion. And then the university monitors it and says, yes, you can reduce five tons of soil loss per acre per year. The farmer just knows I'm not seeing dirt in the Creek and I'm not seeing dirt blowing off my field to the neighbor's land. So, mm. you know, for $13 an acre cover crop seed, I can keep more dirt on my place than the neighbor's place. And then universities get involved in the research. That's just a, you know, a, a 30,000 foot example. But so I enjoyed the practical side and work with a lot of universities. I've been an adjunct professor at several and work with graduate students. And I love that research side. The politics of the dean saying, you know, you can't park here, you can't do whatever, whatever is is not for me. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me a bit when you guys, you, you purchased the Proven Grounds, and I've heard you mention before, it was kind of, uh, and you're excited uh, to see some deer tracks, basically. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, so I'm 60 years old, and I've had two kidney transplants in my life. I've been a transplant patient 31 years, super blessed, still healthy, still able to do stuff, and, and, uh, but I'm not going to go gym and work out a lot. So I walk a lot. Skinny transplant patients need to keep some weight off. You know, want those medicines working good. So uh, Trace and I bought this, I think, 21 years ago. And it was for Onyx or our hunt stand or anything really good, you know. So I had a paper topo map, seven and a half minute quad. I'd walk a little section and check off that section. I mean, I'd walk ridge top, And the next day if I'm home, drop down 50 yards. And that's how I learned to land. Kept notes, you know, geeky scientists kept notes. And the first year of the biggest investment of our lives. The first year I saw one deer, I saw a tail going around a cedar tree. Wow. And, and so we're in all of this and, and there were no, of course it was all rocky. It'd been old cattle ranch, highly overgrazed cows just surviving. They weren't like being malicious, just doing what they thought they knew how to do, but they ate the best and left the rest. And that's what happens when you have cows, we drive down the road and you see a, hundred acre pasture and, you know, a bunch of cows out there and they're not being moved. Predators aren't moving them like Buffalo or anything. They're going to eat the best. And you see these spiky things sticking up. Those are weeds that cattle absolutely won't eat. And the good stuff is, you know, lip high out there. Mm. Well, that's what cattle will do if they're not managed appropriately. And deer will do the same thing if not managed appropriately. And that's what had happened on this ranch. Matter of fact, you know, it's kind of shameful to say, but I'm not sure I've ever worked a property with as many dead cattle skeletons that had literally starved to death 
as my own place. Wow. Of course, I wasn't involved in that. So that's that's how poor the habitat was. Wow. So what was the uh, what was the turkey population like when you took that place over? You know, uh, this sounds like a story, but it's absolutely true. I have a really good friend, Scott Reynolds. We, we've hunted together for decades, turkey hunted. And uh, he was going to help me paint my border purple. We bought it right before turkey season. So we said, we're hunting in the mornings. And then Finn on, in Missouri, you can only hunt at 1 o'clock. And spending so afternoons, kind of learning land and painting the border purple. Purple's a no trespassing sign in Missouri. It's called the Purple Paint Law. Several states have it. And so we're here every day at that time of two-week season. And we heard one gobbler the whole two weeks being here every morning. And we called him Seed. He was in the same place right by the driveway. I think I'll trespassers, poachers. I should share that uh, a guy had died and left his ranch to a hospital and were split by a county line. So I don't think the sheriff or the deputies from either county kind of made it here. Mm. And this was just like the best public hunting because there was no rules or regulations. Oh. You know, there was freezers dumped everywhere and, you know, that kind of place. Uh, that's why we could afford to buy it. <laughs> and uh, so we called that bird seed and he would, he, there's a little hardwood head right out here still now, to, right by my driveway. And I think everyone drove by seed and he would drop down and strut on this little power line and go back. And I didn't, I mean, I was, I could have harvested seed, I believe, but I said, man, I'm not killing the only Turkey on, on this whole property. So we gave seed a pass. I did not Turkey hunt for like five years. Wow. Okay. Okay. I did not deer hunt for five years. I'm, I'm a deer biologist. I love venison. I did not harvest a deer for five years off my own property. That's wow. how bad it was. Well, uh, today it's obviously very, very different. You're working to keep uh, keep your deer numbers in check. I know you guys set goals for the number of does you take every year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You haven't met them every year. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there seems like there's been some years that you're like, boy, we really we really got to get after it a little bit better because we didn't quite take as many as we should have. Yeah. 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 But we're hunters like everyone else, you know, when you get busy or you're working and you miss your goal and you got to pick it up slack next year, you know, so people ask a lot, how many does should you harvest? You control deer population by does, not buck harvest. You harvest bucks for, for glory or for antlers or, you know, whatever fun, whatever you harvest does to manage population. And, and you should have enough groceries of the quality you want for your herd through the two stress periods, late winter, like now, you know, if your food plots are lip high and the native browse is five feet high, you have more deer than that habitat can support at a quality level. The deer are suffering. They're not gonna produce as good antlers as they could. They're not gonna make as much milk. And, I, and we all talk about antlers to get people's attention, but you know, if you, and I don't mean this wrong, please know my heart, but if you, uh, I'll be very cautious here. If you adopt a child from a, a very impoverished third world nation, I mean, that, of course, that kid's won life's lottery. It's so blessed and, you know, it's doing great, but it may never quite express its full potential. And I'm not meaning it's wrong. I'm a huge believer because the mother probably couldn't produce quality milk mm. or wasn't in good health when it was carrying that baby. Yep. We see this with babies born from mothers addicted to certain drugs and stuff, right? Yep. yep. Uh, well, same way is true with fawns. If that mother is really stressed, and there's been lots of research on this, if that mother was really stressed, that fawn throughout its life will never express its full potential. It may be great for your area, but it will never express its full potential. And so you want enough groceries for deer to have plenty of food through late winter, and late summer tends to get a little drier in late summer, more of a stress time. 
And if you're doing that, your deer are expressing a, a good percent of their full potential. And then tweaking that last 10% out, it's really difficult to do. Sure. Sure. Well, talk, talk to me a little bit about where your uh, where the turkey population is now. So you started off with, with one gobbler when you bought the place and you spent some time uh, taking off and I'm, I'm good, just going to, just going to venture a guess. I've seen some of the trail camera pictures that you share. You've got a few more turkeys now. We got a few more turkeys now. It is. <laughs> I will just tell you, it's very good turkey hunting. Most turkey hunters would really enjoy hunting the proving grounds. You get to hear a bunch of birds, see some birds, you know, see sign. It's it's fun. I'll tell you, it's fun. Uh, and it, it, I started protecting it and discouraging trespassers from harvesting turkeys or even coming on the land. And, you know, and I didn't harvest any myself, nor did my family. We got the population getting and simultaneously worked on improving the habitat. It's never just protecting the population. That's called preservation. And I'm a conservationist, which means the wise use of resources. A preservationist just locks it up and kind of looks at it. But if you don't do it, if it's been mismanaged in the past and you lock it up, it's not going to get any better. You have to actively manage it for it to improve, just like with humans. So uh, we were improving habitat, using prescribed fire, cutting cedars, planting some food plots, killing Cerecia lespidiza, some of the noxious weeds that were taking space that high-quality native plants could grow. And turkey population started responding as it will. And at that time, there was still a fur market. So I wasn't really mad at predators. I didn't really feel they were out of balance. And and I, I say this a lot, and I realize I don't define it, but when I say predator populations are out of balance with prey, is they're limiting the prey's ability to reproduce to a sustainable amount. So in Missouri, and pretty much nationwide right now, there's always pockets and exceptions. My ranch would be an exception. But the statewide average right now for turkeys, depending on where you are, is about 0.8 to 1.2 poults surviving to maturity from a hen. So she's basically replacing herself. If you take much out for predation or harvest, then the per- turkey population is going to decline. You can't have an investment or a critter barely replacing itself and taking the excess off of it. It's just really simple math. It's not, some people are making this whole turkey thing really complicated. It's mm-hmm. really not. Yeah. And so it always starts with habitat. It's not just predators. It's always habitat. You got to have a, you know, you got to be able to feed and you got to be able to have security. And that's habitat basically, right? And water, water is really a limiting factor. Um, and so we started improving the habitat and our turkey population really started coming up. Boy, there's some great early hunts, you know, still learning land, a lot of fun. And then it started going down like everywhere else. And I'm very active. I said, well, I don't want this to happen. And I realized that no one's buying or selling furs anymore. So I got me some traps and started just waxing predators. I mean, just legal. If it's illegal, I was doing it, man. I was just taking care of them. All of a sudden, my turkey population come back up. But the state numbers and state harvest, like in Missouri, and don't quote me on this. I'll get a bunch of hate mail. But I believe it's 24 years in a row our harvest has declined. Mm, Yep. You know, that, that's not a fluke. That's not weather. That's, there's an issue. Yep. And a lot of states like that. Some states, South Carolina had, when I was in college here at Clemson, we were allowed five toms. I'm not saying that was appropriate for time, but that was a bag limit. And there was turkeys everywhere, man. Everyone's killing turkeys. 
and now it's down to three and only one the first 10 days or something like that. And other states are thinking about not allowing decoys or decreasing the efficiency of hunters so more people can recreate. I'm all about people being out and using the resource because of all these life lessons you learn, but maybe not harvesting as many. So, you know, for example, if we were doing that with deer, we might limit everyone to a, a muzzleloader or a recurve bow or something. We want everyone out there participating but we want to reduce the total harvest. So you, you modify that by tools or season length or something like that. And states are starting to do that with turkey populations. I think that's sad. So overall, we know we've lost a huge amount of habitat. I mean, there's just more stuff marked parking lots everywhere or housing developments or whatever. That, that's undeniable. But when we've done that, and if you look at the data, the predator populations in most states that, that monitor this is increasing. So Again, simple math, there are more predators per unit area. And we produced a graph a few years ago. We'd removed, and I don't remember exact number, 100 plus predators off 1,500 acres, something like that, right around 100. And it ended up being a predator about every 30 acres of land. Coon, possum, mainly what we were removing. Well, if you think about this, just think about this now. A turkey, on average, lays about 10 eggs a hen. So she lays the first one, that's day one, and then she'll lay one every day till she stops laying, usually about 10. So that first egg's been on the ground 10 days when she's done laying. And then she's going to incubate for 28 days. So now at the end of the incubation, that's 38 days on the ground, 38 days. And if you got a predator, and I just talked in coon and possum, thinking about crows, hawks, eagles, snakes, Rats, domestic dogs, domestic cats. There's a lot of things that like eggs for breakfast. Mm. Okay. I mean, a lot. Yep. Uh, and it's just got to get downwind of that nest close enough to detect it because that hen is not like coming out fighting, keeping the predators away. They just got to get there and it's an easy meal. Okay. And then they hatch. We're, we're 38 days into it and they hatch. And it's 14 more days before they're mature enough to fly up and roost on a limb. So they're on the ground from that first egg to the winter on a limb is 52 days. Now, if it rains once in 52 days, if you've ever turkey hunted during the rain or maybe it started raining on the way to truck, whatever, and you're toting that tom over your shoulder, you know wet turkeys smell. And actually a great scientist at Mississippi State years ago published the wet hen theory. And predation on turkey nest is higher on wet nights or you know after rains because the predators can just smell the hen easier. So, it takes a lot to get off a successful poke. That's why, I mean, if every turkey out there had 10 successful pokes, we'd be walking on turkeys out there. God knew there was going to be a lot of loss, but where's that balance between the loss and the turkey population being able to stabilize? That's what I'm looking for. So it always starts with habitat, but the best quality habitat, this is where I differ from a few of my colleagues, very politely, of course, the best quality habitat in the world. And a predator every 30 acres, that quality habitat doesn't matter. Mm. That quality habitat is not a secure shark cage that keeps predators away. We have to find a balance. We can't just ignore predators and only talk habitat. And likewise, we can't only, we can't only talk predators and ignore habitat. And so if you have a, a poultry house, your chicken coop behind your house or a big commercial poultry farm with 30,000 chickens or turkeys, whatever in there. If you had that poultry house and you turn loose two pit bulls in there, 
I mean, that poultry house for those turkeys are per- the, the climate's controlled, the food, the water, everything is perfect. It's perfect habitat for them. But a bunch of them are going to die if you let two pit bulls in there. Yep. So yep. it's not only habitat and it's not only predators. We have to find a balance for all this stuff, which not only here, but many of our clients or many landowners I work with have, have found that balance and have excellent turkey hunting. We can still have it. I want to take that one further if we can. I know I've been on this, but let me take that one further. So I hear a lot of times, I'm just going to take Kansas because I do a lot of work in Kansas. Uh, man, Grant, my, I mean, I've been farming this land, Grandpa farmed, but our habitat hasn't changed. We've had bean fields here. We, you know, have these little fence rows, have cow pasture. It, and you look at Google Earth, you know, you can go to Google Earth or Google Earth Pro, Go up now. I think it's the top left corner and slide it back. Google Earth Pro is a great tool, by the way, and it's free. Slide it back, and you can see usually back into like the 80s or 50s. You can see what your land looked like back in time. Have trees grown, been harvested, you know, houses built, whatever. It's really a cool feature. Okay. And you go back in some of these big ag areas in Kansas, and they look the same. I mean, you know, maybe there's a new fence row or not a fence row, but they look about the same. But I believe, I don't just believe, I know this habitat has drastically changed because in those days was pre-neonicotoids. Sounds like a big word. Nicotine, of course, we use it long, long ago with deer. It's a paralyzing element. You can dart a deer with nicotine and it won't feel, you know, you putting a collar on it or maybe taking a blood sample. That's what nicotine does. And then you can use a reversal agent and it'll get up and run away from you. Okay. Kind of paralyzes them. Well, some smart ad companies come out with neonics, which is a seed treatment. And it's always bright orange or bright green. Y'all, almost everyone's been around the seed, didn't even know it. They don't, no one reads labels anymore. And that seed treatment's put on real heavy. So it will actually not only protect the seed, but goes into plants and protects it from a lot of insects, predatory insects that would eat or damage that plant. And then we all want farmers to be successful. Okay. Well, neonics do paralyze insects. Now, if you're a little pole walking out in the bean field, you're about the size of a tennis ball or less. You're a young pole. And you see an insect kind of doing that, and you make a living, poles make a living on insects. Insects are high in protein, number one dietary source for a, a young turkey pole is an insect. And there's one that's easy to catch. It's not running away, it's not flying away. You're sucking that thing down. You're loading up with neonics. And I can't prove this. And every time I mention it, I get a bunch of hate mail. My wife's worried we're going to get death threats literally from the big ag. But when you, I have pictures. A lot of people that harvest turkeys now in that heavy ag country open up, take the crop out. That baby's full of green or orange seeds. Of course, when the no-till drill's going or the driller plan or whatever you're doing, people see turkeys out in fields. That's just common. I mean, there's no argument over this. They're eating that easy seed, or farmers get mad because they're just scratching down the road, and they're loading up with neonic-treated seed. Now, the Europeans have done a huge amount of research, and neonics kill songbirds like crazy. That that's not debatable. Neonics are one of the number one decline of all pollinators because it gets into pollen of plants, and a little bee just can't take it. Okay. There are alternatives to using neonic-treated seed, and I'm not anti-farming. I hear that comment. I, I, I preach no-till drills and cover crops and regenerative ag. I'm certainly not anti-farming. But I think there's better ways to control insect damage, which everyone needs to do, 
than using that particular chemistry. And so that habitat doesn't appear to have changed in Kansas, but now there's neonics all over. Over, hear me clearly, hear me really clearly, America. 90 plus percent, it's almost 99 percent of the field corn planted in America is treated with neonics. Over 50% of the soybeans are treated with neonics. Wonder what happened to pollinators? Wonder what's happening to turkeys? I mean, it's crystal clear. Yeah, you know, you're the first person that I ever heard say anything anything about that. And I heard you mention the that study on song or the studies on songbirds over in Europe. And so I started doing a little digging. And when I realized, I mean, Europe likes to farm just like we do, right? Yes. Um, but they decided yes. the risk with neonics was not worth it. So they banned them, correct? Yes. Got rid of them. Most and, countries. Yes, and, most and, countries in Europe. And there are ways to uh, still have successful crops for farmers to, to still make money without them. Oh, absolutely. Can I, can I go here just a second? I won't chase this rabbit. Please do. I, li- I live in farm country. Please do. Some of the most profitable farmers in America don't take any government subsidies, none, okay? And they use, they follow nature, they mimic nature. They use what we call the release process or an ag is called regenerative ag. Uh, and, and they're growing tremendous crops, almost as good or better than the guy that's using all, all these synthetic inputs, but they have no synthetic inputs, so their profit's much higher. Uh, one of them is Gabe Brown. He's he's out in Bismarck, uh, South Dakota, farms about 5,000 acres. And I don't know this year, but I heard him give a seminar. I think it was last year, maybe the year before. This is still relative. And his input to harvest cost of corn, input to, I mean, from planting to market, was $1.13 a bushel. At $3 corn, he's making almost 200% profit. Wow. The average for America, because of all these synthetic inputs we've been sold and said, you have to use, you have to use, you have to use, is over $5 a bushel from planting to harvest. And a $3 corn without government subsidies, you're gone. Wow. There is a much better way. And folks, I mean, just think about this. I mean, you got me all fired up here, but over every (laughs) acre of land, there's over 70 tons of nitrogen in the air. What we breathe in is NO3. Now, NO3 would kill us instantly, but our lungs can't break it down. It just goes in and out, okay? Over every acre, or every acre, not, well, it doesn't happen on my farm. I hear that all the time. I'm like, really? The wind ain't blowing? You ain't getting the same air we are? Over every acre is 70 tons of nitrogen. Why would you have, nitrogen is made out of natural gas. It's totally synthetic. Plants were never built to do that. Plants were were made to take nitrogen out of the air or microbes in the soil, put it in the root. The Native Americans threw a fish down in the hole, we're told, but they certainly weren't adding a bunch of anhydrous. Mm. Anhydrous is extremely toxic, kills earthworms by the billions. And earthworms, you know, earthworm goes forward, you know what happens out the back end? Yeah, almost constantly, it's going out the back end. Earthworm scat is extremely valuable fertilizer. It's also aerating soil, just the exact amount of water infiltrating in, oxygen infiltrating in. I'm gonna go one last thing. I just, I just, guys, just, just I think, I think the biggest thing we can do for conservation, 
the biggest thing we can do to take care of creation is stop tilling the soil. Mm. It all starts with soil, folks. Turkeys, deer, antlers, humans, human health, all these diseases we had now that we didn't have 50 years ago. We started getting nitrogen right after World War II. It was developed in Nazi Germany as part of the bomb building process. They lost the war, fortunately, before they got there. The guy, this is all well published. It had this formula come to America. What am I going to do? I said, oh, nitrogen, real cheap. Let's see if we throw it on ground, see if we can grow some corn with it. That's how it all started. I, I've oversimplified it, but that's the gist of how it all started. We were growing crops before we did this. You don't ever need to pay for nitrogen. If you see me, and I'm not saying you got to watch, but if you watch the bucks we kill, I think most people say, ooh, that's pretty good deer. Our food plots look good. You need to hear that this year will be our eighth year of zero, zero fertilizer. Wow. Zero lime. And I'm not fudging like, well, we're putting manure out, but we're not calling that fertilizer. I mean, zero inputs except seed. Now, I, I fertilize a few test plots for its comparisons because someone may see a bag of tinted in the back of my truck. The vast majority of my food plots get nothing but seed, sunshine, air, rain. And they look they look good. I'm not boasting. You can do this too. I want to help you do it too. And there's nothing to sell. I mean, the sun is free. The air is free. The rain is free. There's nothing to sell. It's just techniques. It's just replicating nature. There were 60 million buffalo on the Great Prairie. 60 million by almost every estimate. That's just the Great Prairie. There were woodland bison in South Carolina and Massachusetts and all over. No one was cutting hay. No one was planting nitrogen on the ground. 60 million. A buffalo is about 2,000 pounds for a big when a cow is about 1,000. Mm. I mean, just do the numbers on this. So anyway, can I do one last thing? I'm sorry. You got Absolutely. No, I hear all this crazy stuff about cows being the big pollutant, you know, and just nonsense talk, just politic talk. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not even thought through. One of the big articles here a while back was, boy, wetlands are putting off this methane gas. What's they do? You ever, you ever go duck hunting or frogging with your kids and you stick your boot in the mud and you pull it up and, boy, it smells like someone passed a little. I mean, it smells bad. That's methane coming out of mud. All right, well, if that was the issue to global warming, just, just think, just America, just think just a little. If that was the issue to global warming and we've destroyed 99% of the wetlands in America, Mm. 99%. Wow. This isn't adding up, folks. Yeah. Yeah. This is not adding up. So here's the bottom line the earth can heal itself really easily. Yep. Really easily. It's so, I'm just constantly in awe of how my old rocky, highly eroded, overbrows, dozens of dead cow skeletons on the land at my place here at Branson, Missouri look like a moonscape and it's all we could afford of course it was cheap it's all we could afford is now very productive and it's more about me getting out of way or guiding it than really and and missed you know, it there. In a bunch of uh man there's so much to unpack here this is this is fantastic and you know i i sent in the email you know that i had sent to you like we're in farm country so i, I wanted to get to the bottom of what some of those practices are uh, that could potentially be leading to a decline in turkey populations because I hear a lot of of people who, on the one hand, say ah, it's a big nothing burger. There's there's no big deal with the turkeys. Uh, we just need to quit shooting so many. And then on the other end, there are the uh, people who are just 
losing their minds about we don't know what to do with with turkeys the decline yeah. you know the, the population is just going to crash and burn and there's lots of folks in the middle uh who really want to flatten out the issue it's all about um predators or it's well yeah yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Here in Missouri, we're going through the same thing. Missouri is a state that has four commissioners that kind of guide our department, Missouri Department of Conservation. And long ago, I think Missouri does an excellent job. Long ago, somebody set it up where only two of the four commissioners could be from one political party. So it can't get, you know, sidetracked one year and kind of go one mission or something. It's all awesome. It's all awesome. But, you know, the other day they said, well, we're going to take five years and do this research. I'm thinking, really? We kind of know some issues here. We can start doing mm. some stuff now. Yeah. I mean, let's just say, I, I don't know about y'all, anyone else out there, but I, every spring, I get numerous emails. I can't believe this bald eagle just took out my decoy. <laughs> and I, I'm not anti-bald eagle. Please, sure. I'll get so much hate mail from saying this. <laughs> There's about four times more as many bald eagles now in most states as it was just 10 years ago. They're eating. I love seeing them. I point them out. I stopped carport road. Please hear me clearly. But we have to compensate that there's a whole lot more predators on fewer acres now than there was just a few years ago. Mm. And no one in America could say, boy, you drive down the road in the winter unless they've already migrated south where you are. And there's like a hawk on every telephone pole. They're not just eating rats. I mean, last year, it was really cool. Just so happened, we had a GoPro set on our decoy. This red tail comes in, and it's so cool. And the talons open up, and wham, right on the neck. And, of course, they did that plastic decoy and kind of did that in there. And you could tell, you could just tell, like, a Disney moment. going, my gosh, that was a tough turkey, you know? <laughs> we, have Bob, we have a video of bobcats coming in and pouncing on the back of our decoys. They're, Bobcats, coyotes, they're always chicken. They're going to attack from the rear, not not front. They're not coming out front. They're coming from the rear. Um, the predation pressure is extreme on less land than it was. And, and then combine that with our habitats, and many areas have been degraded, right? I mean, we've high-graded hardwoods. We've, we've converted large swaths of land to fescue pasture and fescue cattle pad. Everyone goes, well, how can fescue be harmful? Fescue is not like native grasses, a clump here, a little dirt, a clump here, a little dirt. It, it's a solid, makes a great yard, man. Solid, solid, thick grass. A, a quail pokes about the size of bumblebee. It just can't walk through it. Wow. It's dead out of nest. It just can't get through it. I mean, there's just, this is not arguable, folks. It just can't get through it. Most turkey pokes can't get through it. So when you have mm. broad expanses of fescue pasture, that's zero habitat for quail or turkeys. You may see some adult turkeys out there, but you're not going to see new posts survive and walk. They, they can't get over an eight-inch clump of fescue. They're just not going anywhere. They're just easy bait. So more predators, reduced habitat quality, and in some areas, neonics or other nasties in the soil, this is not rocket science. We need to figure out our values because, and it's not just turkeys. I mean, some of that neonics leaching into the water system, right? I mean, you know, in the Gulf, it's called hypoxia, a big fancy word, but you can Google this, folks. Really easy. The dead zone in the Gulf, if you're not familiar. Yep. Uh, thousands and thousands, literally thousands, not throwing a number out, a square miles of, of a zone with no life in it. Yep. And that's because of excess nitrogen coming out of that huge Mississippi watershed, huge watershed. The Dakotas all the way down where you are. 
and you know, just one farm here, one farm there, one farm there. That's millions of farms that overapply or their soil quality is so poor that it's running off with the, you know, the erosion and getting in the Gulf. We can do better. We can do better. And turkeys will do better. Just so I guess what I want to say is doing what's right is better for all wildlife and mankind. Just doing what's right. Yeah, that's really good. You know, there, there's one more thing that I, that I want to ask you about, and it's, it's a thought that I've had, maybe a hunch that I've had. Um, you know, it's, it's really popular today um, for folks to, to buy their property and to go all in on the deer management side of things. And I'm all for that. I'm all for quality hunting. Um, sure. I, if, if I could buy a 50 or 100 acre piece and, and manage that thing to the best of my ability, I would be all over it. But I've, I've often wondered if there are some practices that make our landscape maybe better for our hunting or more enjoyable or more pleasing to the eye um, or, or maybe help us to have a little bit better deer hunting experience that could be contributing to declining turkey populations or, or at least not making a, a conducive landscape for turkeys. Have you seen any of that or am I off my rock, off the rocker yeah, here? I think yes and no. No, I think yes and no. I mean, so as a deer hunter, we all love bottlenecks, right? We want that deer to walk within 20 yards of our stand. We want a bottleneck. And what, something I would really encourage America, especially sportsmen, but all of America to do is it seems like in every area, there was a literate journal keeping explore here in missouri it was schoolcroft i just read a great one in kansas i like to read these historical journals was me not just lewis and clark there were many lewis and clarks that were localized mm. and all of them i read talk about pretty much an open canopy forest in most places sun getting down and grasses and forbs growing between trees everywhere here's a, if you're not a reader i know a lot of people like to read here's an interesting one uh, Daniel Boone, of course, was a big writer. He was a senator, if you don't know. He was, you know, in state level. He was a really intelligent man. His spelling was about like mine. You can't already read it, but other than that, it's pretty good. <laughs> and you can just go to YouTube and type in Daniel Boone biography, and and you can listen to it. I I had a new employee with me uh, Saturday working in Oklahoma, and we listened all the way back. Sadly, this is America these days. I mean, you know, man, Daniel Boone was like the number one TV show when I was a kid, and this young man didn't even know it. Well, who's Daniel Boone? I mean, isn't that amazing? That's amazing wow. to me. Uh, but anyway, so I had him listen to it. I have all my interns, our new employees, listen to it because his observations, when you come over to Cumberland and just untold number of buffalo, elk, and deer, and what he called parks, which are savannas, a big tree every now and then, a lot of grass and forbs in between, is incredible wildlife habitat. Mm. And it's contiguous, so turkeys can nest and feed and nest and feed and nest and feed. It's not a bottleneck. Now, we all like bottlenecks. I'm a deer hunter. I like to fantasize that I can create a habitat plan to get a deer within 20 yards of a stand. Uh, that's all good. Here's a part of it that I'm going to take further again that, you know, someone may not like. A lot of people, more legally or illegally, feed. They try to bait deer in front of stand. Yep. A couple of factors here. Corn, uh, you're baiting almost always with corn or some grain, but corn's cheap. Molds quickly, and about 20 parts of aflatoxins, 20 parts per billion. You can't see it, smell it, uh, you know, you don't even know it's there. 20 parts per billion is damaging to a turkey's health. Wow. You put corn or starch on the ground and it gets moist, it's going to mold. It's not maybe, it's going to mold. Hmm. And then you get turkeys 
come into a little, you know, three foot circle every day, you think a really, we're, we're what I call a dumb predator, a two legged predator is a dumb predator. You think a smart predator like a bobcat or a coyote doesn't learn that pretty quickly mm. and they start hunting that feeder and then they fall the hen right back to the nest. So it was never created or built. Our systems were never built for critters to come to a three foot circle every day. Sure. Sure. Uh, and, and people then, all, when I say that, they say, oh, you're a big food plot guy. You're such a hypocrite. Well, food plots rarely are a three-foot circle. I've never planted one a three-foot circle. <laughs> and there was always white oaks or something dropping, and critters would eat here, and they'd eat there. They kind of congregate for, you know, a day or two or a week or two or whatever, and then they go to the next one, they go to the next one, they're moving on. Part of that moving on was probably predators figured out, hey, man, there's a bunch of deer over here, and deer go, oh, it's not uncomfortable to eat here. I'm going somewhere else. So, uh, I think we're doing some things that we've been sold were good that maybe aren't good, or maybe at least we need to moderate what we're doing. I will tell you this. We've been incorporated 31 years. I've worked from New Zealand to Canada. I've never yet seen a property that had, sure enough, pretty good quality habitat and work to balance predator and prey that did not have extremely good hunting. Wow. No, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. I, I mean, I work with 40 acres in Pennsylvania and large tracks in Texas. And, and I want to say one more thing. You have to be realistic. You have 40 acres in Pennsylvania and you want to kill the three bucks that Mark Drury killed last year. It's not going to happen. <laughs> sure. Sure. You're not Iowa, and it's not going to happen. Yep. And you're probably not Mark Drury's. And Mark's a friend of mine, outstanding <laughs> hunter, very skilled hunter. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, so we need to have realistic goals and objectives for our property, and we need to realize that we can only artificially get there so much. You can only pour so much feed out before you start doing damage. It's molding. It's attracting predators. You know, whatever it is. Um, just and I'm not anti-baiting people. I don't choose to do it myself. It's illegal where I live. Other people do it. It's not that I'm just talking about the wildlife. Yep. yep. I don't think anyone goes, man, I want to put some aflatoxin on the ground today. No one's thinking that. Sure. They just never heard this information. People in general want to do what's right. And then I hear, well, you have a bunch of woody brows to survive the winter and I'm going to do this and this, the trees are. And I'm thinking, really? Man, Manitoba, North Dakota, South Dakota, Western Kansas, all pretty good places to hunt. There ain't no wood to make a woody browse with. Mm. There's no trees there, folks, or yeah. very few. I mean, I say no, someone send me a hate email. There are very few trees there. <laughs> woody browse is kind of like sawdust. It's not growing big antlers. Mm. Get your deer really healthy in the growing season, just like God planned it. A lot of forbs, a lot of good groceries. Man, they're going to go through the winter in high cotton. They've yeah. been doing it since before anyone was talking about it. Wow. Wow. I, I've heard you. And another thing that I've heard you talk about is a lot of times uh, the way the landscape is set up now, it's made it really easy for predators traveling and getting downwind of nests during nesting season. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're real fragmented. Our habitat's pretty fragmented and, and part of it's just the land ownership, you know, or farming or whatever. And part of it is we fragment it to try to bottleneck deer. I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. Um, but again, when you read these early explorers, 
man, they're, they're riding their horse through miles and miles and miles of contiguous grass forward savanna type habitat. Turkey can nest anywhere in there. So you have, I like to make my habitat blocks a minimum of 10 acres, not two acres, because you got a little two acre block again, nothing for a coyote, coon, possum, whatever, get downwind of that at night and smell the nest. Mm, yep. Thermals are going to go downhill at night, almost every night, unless there's a big front, big wind coming through. So if you got a little bitty cover block, a predator doesn't have to hunt the whole cover. Remember, they're hunting by their nose. We, we think like humans. We need to think like the critter. I can't hunt by my nose very well anyway. I'm, I'm a side hunter. Uh, it, but predators are hunting with their nose. So they're, all they have to do is get downwind. They don't have to see the animal. And that wind at night, usually the wind lays, usually it's lower velocity at night. Now, again, there's fronts, there's exceptions. And it's going downhill. Cold, it's cooler at night. Sun's not shining. Thermal, cold air is heavy. So thermal sink to the lowest points. That's why predators run creek bottoms because they can smell everything up on the ridge. Because mm. they, they're just hunting with their nose. Yep. Yep. And makes it a lot easier with this fragmented property for them to get down. It's really fragmented. That yeah. predator's only gonna smell 50 yards, 100 yards. He's not covered miles. Yep. Yep. So a predator goes, you know, pick a number, 10 miles a night. And it runs by 20 little five acre cover blocks along the way. Not gonna survive. Yeah. And, and so years ago, I think they still do a little bit, the NRCS. I think a lot of us had good intentions that come out with what's called a government program, CP33 which basically meant we're going to leave 33 yards of cover along the timber line or an in edge of field because the tree roots are taking moisture out of it and the crops aren't as good there, it's shaded or whatever, deer eating the edge off. And we get some wildlife habitat. Sound great. Political went right through Congress, man, sound great. It's all good. All they did was make what I call predator food plots. Mm. Predator just runs along the edge. It's 33. It's the only covering area, right? In big ag country. That's the only cover in the area. Yep. Every quail, turkey, whatever fawn is dropping right there because it's the only cover in the area. All the predators knew where to hunt. And that same thing happened earlier on. Again, Mississippi State first reported this many years ago, back when I was in grad school, six years ago. I'm not going to say it. I'm teasing. <laughs> uh, but it was really big for the big timber companies in the south to leave SMZ, Streamside Management Zones. Yep. And they'd be pretty narrow and they were to keep silt from getting into the stream, leave a couple big hardwood trees, hunters be happy and clear cut the rest and still charge a whole lot for the lease. SMZs, streamside management zone. Sounded good. And it probably did keep some sedimentation from getting into water courses and, you know, stuff like that. No doubt about it. But they, this is before GPS, but they put some radio collars on hens. And of course, they're all messed in there. Mm. You got a bald, fresh clear cut, or you got some brush 20, 30 yards wide along the creek. Where are you going to nest? You're going to go in the brush. Predators are wiping them out. Wow. So, just some thought again, just some thought, some common sense applied. I like to make my cover blocks a minimum 10 acres, even larger where the land allows. And, and you're a 40 acre landowner, I promise you, you know, designed appropriately with a good thought. If you have 10 acres of cover, your property will hunt much bigger than 40 acres because more critters want to be there. And, and, and we think, well, people all go, man, I don't want to, I don't want to manage for cover. I'm going to manage for hunting. Well, where do critters, where do deer spend their daylight hours in cover? Don't you want them on your land during daylight hours? Hmm. They spend their time in cover during the day. 
So speaking to speaking to this predator piece, I mean, as we look at, I mean, there's a lot of issues, obviously, right, leading to declining turkey populations. Um, you're, like you mentioned, it, it it's it can be complete. There are multiple things coming together, uh, but it's not necessarily rocket science. And one of the easiest things for us to get our hands on as an everyday guy is probably that predator control piece, right? Like that's that I can do that as a guy that only hunts on public land. Like I can go out set traps on public land and and help the turkeys out in that way. Um, I've heard you do a uh, talk quite a bit in the past about the timing of trapping in relationship yeah. to turkey. Yeah, so point. speak to that a little bit. And because I think a lot of yeah, guys, lo- lots of research, lots of research has shown that you have a higher nest or fawn survival rate. If you remove predators right before nesting or fawning season, and just that is you're, None of us are good enough trappers short of, you know, just intense work to remove all the predators. You're not going to do that. You're just reducing the level, trying to find that balance. Mm -hmm. Well, if you find that balance, like here in Missouri, our trapping season ended January 1st. Now, next year, several people in the state have been lobbying to get the state to extend that through March or even early April. And I think that's going to happen. But so we're done trapping. I'll use my data as a perfect example. And then by by turkey season, our troll cameras are still picking up predators. I'm seeing scat on the road. Again, predators travel road. It's easy to travel at night, whatever. And I think we knock it down enough that it doesn't quite build up to the point that we can have a little bit higher poached survival rate than average. Uh, I'd like to share with everyone some great research. It never got as much airtime as I thought it should. University of Georgia did at a big project, big research site in Georgia. And they built four this years ago. So if I'm off a little bit, forgive me, but I think they built four predator proof enclosures, a foot and a half in the ground for cows, bobcats and four feet tall, 80 acres on 20,000 plus acres of land Mm. and put a feeder right in the middle and a feeder the same distance outside and had some GPS collar does and come fawning season adjusted research is most of those jump the fence and and fawned and raised their fawns in there where there wasn't predator pressure they could sense that difference and people wow. say oh i can't believe that well you know if you and i were in afghanistan this morning we wouldn't be kind of lollygagging we'd be hunkered down or trying to make it to the embassy or something like that right yep and, and, and deer sense that difference and i mean it's common out west for deer to avoid certain canyons because mountain lions just i mean they're just there i mean they you know go in there well aunt betty went in there she ain't never come back man i ain't never seen no aunt <laughs> betty again she went in that canyon so uh, you know, just reducing predators again to a level where enough of a prey species can have a successful nest or fawn to to maintain or, if necessary, increase the population. So, if you can trap right before or during that fest fawning or nesting season, then you're impacting predation right there on the site. And the duck people have done this forever. They wait until nesting season to trap predators on the great prairie, a lot of fox actually, they're doing good to remove them two months ahead of time because more gonna move in. Predators have large home ranges, they move a lot. So as my personal testimony here, I'll just use raccoons as an example. Uh, when I first started trapping raccoons, I think my record was 27 pounds. That's not big for ag area, but in timber country, that's a big coon here. That's like a little, little grizzly bear and they're, they're mean like a grizzly bear. And, and about 50-50 male-female. And as time has went on, now we catch about 90% 11-pound males. We've knocked our predator population down, and every year those males are dispersing back in. 
And by the time, and our trapping season ended in January. So by the time nesting season gets here, there's a lot of predators roaming the ground again. So that's why it's really important to trap right during that nesting fawning season. If your goal is to have more prey species survive. And I want to add one more thing to this. So it's common. You hear all of us, you know, proud Americans saying, boy, those doggone South Americans are, they're cutting the Amazon. They're cutting the trees or there's no nesting habitat. For the many species of neotropicals or songbirds that, that summer here in North America and winter in South America. And I'm sitting here saying, you know, that finger, there's some bunch pointed back at us because there's here in Missouri, there's 27 species of songbirds that nest zero to five feet from the ground. Wow. Coons are wearing those rascals out. Wow. I mean, you know, those songbirds going, gee, 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 gee. mama, bring me a worm, mama, bring me a worm. You don't think a coon hears that? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's really, really good. I, I, yeah, I just wanted to dive into that for a bit because I, I think that that, that, that's pretty key. And some folks like yourself, you, you can't really trap at that ideal time, uh, because you're limited to, you know, to your January 1st, but, but I think others with a little bit of, of a longer trapping season, I think even like here in Wisconsin, we got a little bit longer trapping season and we can, we can get closer, uh, and closer out. That's also really interesting how you're keeping track of that data of the, the raccoons that you're catching. And you can kind of gauge how good of a job you guys are doing at keeping your your local uh, nest predator yeah. population down because you're getting these males that are 11 pounds that are dispersing out from, I, I guess. From yeah, other, we're not other, getting many females. Females tend to, you know, stay a little closer to home as true in most, a lot of species. Yep. So we have reduced, we still catch females, but we've reduced that residual female population. I mean, they're out. I mean, they're out feeding and killing like crazy that time of year trying to feed their offspring. Yep. And again, I'm not mad at predators. I'm just seeking a balance. And if I think the balance goes too far, I'll be the first to say, man, we got to back off. But with no fur prices, to put this in scale, folks, I'm 60. So when I was in high school, I was a senior in 1979. A, a good-sized coon on the carcass, not skinned and fleshed out, was about $40. You on a date and you saw a good coon that a semi hadn't hit yet, you know, roadkill, you put, you top, stopped, threw it in the trunk, because that's the next two dates paid for right there. Wow. So that's in 79. Right now, the best coons bring about $4 a piece. And wow. most coons are not sold. You can go to North American Fur Auction, NAFA, North American Fur Auction online, look this up, and it will say, you know, 2 million coons presented, 700,000 bought. There are coon pelts all across America in cold storage because wow. there's no market for them. And I don't look for that market to come back very soon. Man. Wow. Yeah, so not, not a lot of incentive, right, for folks to no, get out there. I'm, so think about it. When I was a senior in high school, gas was 79 cents a gallon. Traps were $10 a dozen, whatever they were, you know, cheap. Now traps are $200 a dozen, and gas is three and a half cents a, you know, $3.50 a gallon. There is no incentive to trap from a monetary gain and recreational trappers don't tend to be as good as someone out there trying to buy some Christmas gifts for his kids. Wow. Well, well, Grant, where I'm at, uh, in Southern Wisconsin, I, I really appreciate this conversation so far about Turkey conservation. And one of the things that I hope to do is to convince folks around us that, uh, you know, that listen to this podcast, that they should care about Turkey populations, not just right here where we're at, but nationwide. The, the next piece, though, and the, the, the last thing I want to ask you, uh, this is kind of, uh, to me, it seems like the good old days for turkey hunting here where I'm at. You know, I grew up in Alabama. 
it was a big deal for us to see a turkey where where I was in far southern Alabama. We just didn't mm-hmm. see a lot of them. Uh, same thing in Louisiana. I, I hunted in Louisiana for eight years. I didn't do a lot of or I didn't do any turkey hunting while I was there, but I, I saw one turkey the entire time I lived in Louisiana. Now, we lived in some of the marshier areas, and so it just mm-hmm. weren't a lot of them. For those folks who kind of feel like we're in the good old days right now for turkey turkey numbers in our area, how do we stay there? And how do we avoid having to go through this massive plunge before we wake up and say, uh oh, we got to do something? Well, it's a great, great question. You know, if things are good, then I, I tell people don't fix what's not broken, keep doing the same thing. However, I think good is always a perspective. You know, I, I you know, I'm good. I, if I run an eight minute mile, I'm thinking, man, that's pretty good. Great. You were hustling today, <laughs> but you know, my kids don't think an eight minute mile is very good at all. So it's kind of perspective, right? Sure. Uh, I think in Wisconsin, if I remember right, you're still kind of applying for a lottery tag and you get one of five weeks to hunt or something like that. And all yep. states have different systems as much on politics as it is on biology. And I'm thinking, gosh, in Missouri, we just go over here to Stuff Mart and buy a tag. And, you know, we're allowed two weeks for South Carolina. You go buy a tag and there's three, everyone can buy a tag. Mm-hmm. And I learned this lesson about relative early on because I used to work, as I mentioned, with mule deer in the state of Nevada for the BLM, Bureau of Land Management. You have to define that anymore because BLM's got a lot of names these days. But yeah. I worked for the Bureau of Land Management, actually the largest landowner in America, but way larger than the Forest Service. Just people in the East don't know it because it's mainly Western land. Yep. Yep. Um, and Nevada at that time was the second least populated state in America. It's 87% federal land. Only wow. 13% of the state of Nevada is private land. Most people don't know that. Wow. It, it's amazing. So you think it'd be a hunter's paradise, right? Almost no one lives in the state and it's almost all public land. And from then in the late seventies, early eighties until now, residents still have to apply for a deer tag. Really? You're 87% public land. And there's not enough deer for every resident to go to Stuff Mart and buy a license. Wow. So, again, I think a bigger perspective, a bigger knowledge base helps people make better decisions. And we're so blessed in, in so many areas. White-tailed deer or weed species, I love them dearly. My oldest daughter is Raleigh, dweller by the deer meadow. My youngest daughter is Ray, R-A-E, which is Hebrew for doe. I mean, I love deer. They impact everything in my life. But they're a weed species, and they survive almost anywhere. Now, where on the quality level do we want them is a different story. Uh, and in Wisconsin, man, you got all this land, all this great habitat, and everyone's got to apply for a tag. So it's the good old days compared to 10 years ago in Wisconsin. It's not the good old days compared to maybe some other places. Sure. That's right. That's right. Well, Grant, I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. If folks want to see or hear more from you, where can they go? You know, just search on growing deer. We're, we're on a lot of platforms. I don't talk much about it out there, but you'll find our social media or we produce a new show every week. Just search on growing deer and you'll find us. All right. Thanks a lot, Grant. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.